this morning and praise you that we can be here together and we can gather. We praise you that for those who are online and are listening in, Father, I pray that you would encourage, you would comfort each and every person. That you would bring great comfort to them. Father, I pray that we would look to you. Father, as we sang in the song, our hope is only Jesus. Oh, what a hope it is. What an amazing hope it is. A hope that is true. A hope that we can count on. We can be confident. Father, we know that no matter what, you are on your throne. We can trust in you. Christ. This morning, we're going to return to a familiar passage of Scripture that some of you, at least, that have were here over the over the last um, couple of years. I preached through James. I think we ended up a little bit more than a year ago in, in James. And so we're going to return to James chapter 1. I think James has much to tell us about how to handle, how to, to walk through what we're facing, potentially facing anyway, over the next weeks and months. Let me read James chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. Starting in verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Beloved, I, I know for some of us, for some of us, this what we face could be, could very well be the most difficult event in our lifetime. I know some of you who are listening have been through some very difficult times. Some have even we have one member of our church that has even experienced the Great Depression and World War II. And the Cold War, with its threat of nuclear holocaust. Some of you are a little bit newer to this, and 
You may have only experienced the Great Recession of 2008. We don't know what the Lord will bring to pass with this current situation and how it will compare to some of these others. I think, though, that we can be reasonably certain that the impact on our economy alone could be beyond anything we have seen in our lifetime. The financial markets, even before Friday, have been rocked by the spate of closures and bans. We have no idea what this will do to the markets, the construction market, the retail market, the tourism market, all of which help drive economic growth in this country. If you work in one of those industries, I do, I work as a, in construction, uh, you may be a little nervous right now. Obviously, the greater concern, though, is the actual effects of this virus. I don't think we can completely understand, even sitting here today, the impacts that it could have. My hope is, is that the mitigation that we're going through right now, the separation and the shutting down of things, my hope is, is that flattens the curve and we don't experience experience as much as we could. But we don't know completely what will happen. We do have some idea of how quickly this virus can spread. It can cause exponential growth and infections within a very short period of time because our we don't have a lot of immunity to the virus. This, this, this growth, this exponential growth can could overwhelm our medical system if we don't act fast, and that's why we're seeing so much of the so many of these shutdowns in such a short period of time. You know, let me let me say that most of the infections are mild symptoms from what we can tell. But the percentage that will result in hospitalizations can quickly overwhelm our hospital capacities, and that really is the issue. At ground zero of this event in China, Wuhan, China, they had to build a temporary hospital. That they, that they built, I think, in 10 days to accommodate all the cases in that city. Now, it might be helpful for us to think through just quickly a timeline of the events that have led up to this. I, I'm not telling you this stuff to alarm you. And actually, I want you to be aware of what we're facing as a people. And ultimately, I want to bring you hope and comfort. The coronavirus, as you may know, surfaced late last year in a, in a Chinese seafood and in, uh, poultry market and is now spread, as you know, to most of the world. On December 31st, the government of China confirmed that there was a, a, tr a dozen cases of pneumonia with an unknown cause. In January, on January 11th, the, the Chinese state media reported its first death from the virus. The report of this death came just days before one of China's biggest holidays, the Chinese New Year, where people, hundreds of millions of people traveled across the country. On January 20th, we saw the first concern confirmed, that is, cases outside of China. And on January 23rd, Wuhan, a city of more than 11 million people, was cut off by Chinese authorities. On January 30th, the WHO, the World, the World Health Organization, declared a global health emergency. And by the 14th, France and, and Europe had its first reported case. 
Just yesterday, France introduced measures to effectively shut down its country. On the 21st, the, the first case in the Middle East, in Iran, came. And by the 29th, the United States had recorded its first death. And at this point, just two weeks later, we have canceled every major event planned for at least the next several weeks. Several European countries have shut down all travel, and the United States is not allowing European travel into our country. The U.S. is most likely to do so as well, shutting down even potentially domestic travel. Beloved, we can't imagine the impact that this might have on our lives for the foreseeable future. As we as we think back through human history, there are there are some events that arrest our attention. Thinking of, of sicknesses, I think Jonathan mentioned it earlier. You may be thinking of uh, the Spanish flu of 1918 or even the Black Plague of the 14th century, or the smallpox epidemic of the 20th century. These are certainly noteworthy, and I'm certain there are others, but I'm actually referring to the two greatest disasters in human history. Two greatest disasters in human history. The fall and the flood. Beloved, the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden is the reason we suffer for, for, with every subsequent disaster. Because sin and death were introduced there. The Apostle Paul confirms this truth in Romans 5.12. He says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So according to this truth of Romans chapter 5, according to Paul, because of what happened in the garden, because of one man's sin, death entered the world. And death, just like this virus is spreading through the world, death spread to all men. Because all have sinned, or all sinned. In Genesis chapter 3, even as God gave the consequences of sin to the man, the woman, and the serpent, he promised redemption. He promised that he would ultimately redeem the man and the woman. He promised a savior, the seed of the woman. And he promised that this seed, this coming seed, would crush the head of the serpent. And he would redeem man and woman from their condition. If you read Genesis, you know that from the fall to the flood, sin proliferated. Sin was, it got so difficult, or so bad, that is, that in Genesis 6-5, it says this. It should be a shocking verse to us. It said this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Have you ever heard so many so many words that are stacked together to say that every direction, everything that man wanted to do, every thought of his heart was only evil continually. So God judged the world with the flood of waters. The flood proved that God would judge sinful mankind and it confirmed 
man's need for this promised Savior. Firm our need. Man's incredibly sinful condition prior to the flood began to prove that God alone had the answer for man's problem. That man truly needed a Savior that God had promised and whom only God could provide. The period of the flood also proved that man cannot save himself. That man, left to his own devices, will destroy himself. You ever thought of it that way? That if you get to the point where man's thoughts, the intents of man's thoughts, his heart, the intents of his heart are evil only, evil continually, that is, that eventually man will destroy himself. And that's where man was. This is really the irony of the flood, right? God saved mankind from destroying themselves by wiping out the entire planet except for Noah and You ever think of it that way? That the flood was salvation? Not just for Noah and his family. Right? They were on the ark and they were saved through the flood. But through the flood of waters. But God saved mankind through the flood. Even today, God alone has the only answer for man's sin problem. The gospel of our Savior, Lord and Savior, our Lord Jesus, the promised Redeemer. Beloved, the gospel is the good news of Jesus' victory over sin and death at the cross. Christ's victory, Christ's victory at the cross is, beloved, is absolutely man's only hope. At the cross, Christ became sin for us. He suffered in our place, bearing the wrath of the Father for our sins. Again, beloved, this truth is our only hope. We stand forgiven and redeemed at the foot of the cross. Christ's victory at the cross over sin and death is our only hope. As we sit here in this room, as you listen online, it's our only hope. He, he is our only hope. His victory is our only hope. And it's the only hope. His victory is the only hope for a lost and dying world. Beloved, we need to hold this truth as precious. Precious. As we navigate these coming trials. Notice I said trials. going to be multiple. Could very well be many trials in different ways. Now I want you to know that fear and anxiety and uncertainty are natural responses. Especially in light of the trials that we currently face. Our Lord knows that we struggle with these. Why do you think he had so much to say about Worry and anxiety in his Sermon on the Mount. Jonathan read it earlier. Just listen to some of what he says. He says, Don't be worried about your life as to what you will eat or drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food or body more than clothing? I mean, he cares. Jesus says he cares for the birds of the air. 
He cares, he cares for them and he feeds them. Aren't you worth much more than that? Why are you worried about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field. He says, he says, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not clothe you? He says this. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? And what will we drink? Or what will we wear with clothing? Your heavenly Father knows that you need it. He knows. And it says in Matthew 6 3. I think this is instructive for us as we face the grave difficulty that we may be facing. It says in Matthew 6 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Look, he wants us to seek him, he wants us to seek his righteousness, and when we do, he will care for us. Saying, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has trouble of its own. Yeah, we face this grave difficulty that, that we, don't, we don't know completely what, what it's going to do. But ultimately, what our Lord is saying is, all we can do is worry about today. All we can do is deal with today. As Jonathan said this morning in our meeting, it may rain tomorrow. We don't worry about tomorrow. We just do what we need to do tonight. As I said, we a year or so ago, we finished a rich study through the book of James, which was written by our Lord's half-brother. And considering our current events, I thought it would be helpful for us to revisit this, this chapter, James chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. This is really the beauty of expository preaching. You see, God illuminates His Word, and this is especially true when we spend much time meditating on His Word. And so, as I was studying through, and as we studied through together in James, uh, the Lord brought out many truths that I think would be very helpful for us to revisit even today. I hope you'll be just as encouraged as I have been, encouraged as I have been, as we re-examine these truths. Now, if you'll see in your book, and we have an outline, but I think what we're going to do is we're just going to read through these verses, and I'm going to comment as we go. I'm hopeful that we will see the truths come out as we do so. So let's start in James chapter 1, verse 1. It says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad, greetings. Let me give you a little background on, on our author, James. As I said earlier, he is the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. He's also the brother of, of Jude. Uh, now, during, during Jesus' earthly ministry, James actually rejected Christ as the Messiah. He, he rejected him, but according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he was a witness to the risen Christ and became a believer. And he also, James, also became a key leader in the church at Jerusalem and was a close associate of the other, or not the other, but of the apostles. James himself was considered to be one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church, which was filled with early Jewish converts to Jesus as Messiah. He was the pastor then to these early first Christians. 
Now, in, in those early days of the church, James served alongside the Apostle Peter and, and John. He, he was well known in the church and around Judea for his righteousness. He was called James the Just because of his devotion to the righteousness of God. Now, one thing is clear as you study James, the, the letter of James, one thing is clear is that James was a true shepherd to his people. James truly had a shepherd's heart. According to the first century historian Josephus, James was martyred in, in Jerusalem in AD 62. Now, we don't know for certain, but it has been said that he was cast down from the top of the temple. He died for his Lord. Now, let me give you a little background on James's readers. James's recipients were clearly Jewish believers who had been dispersed, probably scattered due to persecution. Now, this persecution may have happened just after the martyrdom of Stephen, or it could have been due to the persecution which erupted under Herod Agrippa I. In any case, these people were dealing with incredibly difficult trials as a result of this persecution. Now, I think it's critical or crucial that we understand that James, I think, addresses three different groups in this letter. His primary recipients are these Jewish believers who are being severely persecuted by unbelievers whom we will call the wicked rich. These were wealthy landowners, according to James chapter 5, who were taking advantage of the poor brethren for the purpose of financial gain. These people were James's, these, these wicked rich men, landowners, were James's primary focus in James chapter 5, where he warns them about the miseries which await them for the harsh treatment of the poor brethren. Shockingly, though, Shockingly, these wicked people, these wicked rich landowners were being aided and abetted by so-called Christians. These so-called Christians have declared their belief in Christ, but they refuse to help their brothers or sisters in need. That's If you look at James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, they were literally turning them away. These poor needy uh, brothers and sisters were coming to them for help and they were turning them away and they were probably doing this for fear of backlash from these evil men who had power to break them, especially break them financially. Now, these folks that that are on the fence are James's primary focus in James chapter 2 where he warns them against showing partiality toward the rich. He also warns them not to turn away their brethren who are in daily need of food. Perhaps most alarming, he warns them in James chapter 2 that their professed faith may not be a true faith because their works do not match their profession. Unfortunately, matters were made worse because the church was was probably being led astray by false teachers who were taking advantage of their dire circumstances. James warns these people in chapter 3 when he says, let not many among you become teachers. Now, it's difficult to know for certain what these poor brethren were enduring specifically, but we can be reasonably assured that they were facing alienation from their family and friends, that they were being shorted on their wages, which led to great financial difficulty, 
we can be assured, reasonably assured that they were being abused and taken advantage of by the rich, that they were being judged unfairly in local affairs and even in the church, that they were being left alone for extended periods of time, time to endure all these injustices. They were being left without food, the proper food, clothing, and shelter. They, they didn't have really the necessities of life. And they were being led astray by religious charlatans. Pretty bad situation, right? Much really worse than we can imagine ever dealing with. But I think their difficult story is highly instructive to us. Because of what James says about it. And what James says is the what we should do in, in reaction to it. I think it's safe to say that most of us living in our comfort today have never faced the kind of trials that these people were facing. Even today, as we face this uncertainty of the spread of disease, we live in very we live very comfortable lives. But what if all that were taken away from us? What if you lost all of your comfort? What if you had to endure incredibly difficult circumstances. What would be your hope? How would you deal with a very different life? Where would you look for wisdom? How would you view your circumstances? If you lost everything today, if you woke up today and you had nothing you were struggling even for the necessities of life, how would you view that? Would you lose all hope? I think you will agree with me that these questions have become more real today because of what we've experienced over the past few days. And they may become even more real as we navigate the next few weeks and months. Let's look together and starting in verse 2. In these verses, James is going to give us three reminders why we must trust God in our present circumstances. In, these present, in this present time, in this present trial, James is going to give us three reminders of why we must trust God. In verses 2 through 4, he reminds us that our trials have purpose. They have purpose. They have purpose. In these three verses, two through four, James gives us an abs- the absolute essentials, two absolute essentials when trials come our way. Now, I want to remind you that James calls these various trials. We've already looked at what these were for James's readers. They, these were grave difficulties which arise out of hard circumstances. These can be natural occurrences such as the spread of a virus or man-made situations such as persecution. It really doesn't matter what, where the difficulties come from, in both cases, the actions and reactions of sinful men will always intensify these problems. Remember, as we deal with the next few weeks and months, the actions and reactions of sinful man will intensify these problems. Therefore, according to James, as we traverse this difficult terrain, we must develop the right stance. Look at the text. Verse 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. James starts his letter here 
by cutting it straight regarding trials. He starts with a command. He says, consider, consider it all joy. This word translated consider is in the imperative mood. Therefore, it's a command. If we wish to be obedient as Christians, if we wish to be obedient, we must consider it all joy when we encounter these trials. No choice. The word consider means to engage in an intellectual process. It means to think, to consider, to regard. And James then is aiming at your thought life, which drives your emotions. You see, we have a choice. We can let our emotions drive our thought life, or we can, the other way around, we can rightly inform our minds and hearts with the truth of God's Word, which then dictates our emotions. Does that make sense? Some people let their emotions drive them. What James is saying is, no, make sure that your thoughts are rightly informed by the Word of God, the truths of the Word of God, and let that that rightly informed mind and thought processes processes drive your emotions. You see, you see, we as Christians must must let the word of Christ richly dwell in us. This rightly informs our hearts. It rightly informs our thoughts, which dictate our emotions. The word translated joy may, is defined as a settled contentment in any and every circumstance, in any and every situation. It means it refers to the to an unnatural. Uh, our natural reaction is to is to be emotional, to be angry, uh, to run away from our circumstances. But what James is saying here is that that we need to have a deep and steady, uh, thankful trust in God. In God in spite of, in the face of, our circumstances. James says that we are to consider it all joy. This is true and pure joy. This, is all, this only comes through trusting in the Lord. I believe the NIV actually does translate this instead of all joy, which is the NAS. The NIV translates translate it, consider it pure joy. It's pure. It's unadulterated. It's a, it's a pure understanding that we can trust Christ no matter what our current situation is. We'll see that this type of joy only comes from a knowledge of what God has accomplished in Christ and what He has promised to accomplish in the future through Him. In other words, it's a settled understanding that God will follow through on all His promises. Especially the promise of redemption. Especially the fact that he will redeem this world. That he has redeemed us as Christians, but he will ultimately redeem this world. And and we will dwell together with him. You see, this is a joy which properly accounts for our promised future in Christ. And it's a joy that's only available to those who are in Christ. You see, beloved, the world can't have this kind of joy. The world, the world can't, can't understand how we could be joyful as we face this great difficulty. That I guarantee you that if you go out and you walk in this city over the next few weeks as we face this virus and you have a smile on your face, they're going to go, why? 
Why? How can you be so joyful? We're joyful because we know that Christ has redeemed us and that we will live forever with him. As we face this current situation, I want to ask you, have you used the word of God to inform your thinking? Are you meditating on the truth of his word? Said another way, does his word dwell richly within you? Are you praying without ceasing? As you struggle with fear and anxiety over what is coming, are you working to fear God alone? Have you considered what God has given to you? Oh, I don't mean worldly things, right? I don't mean homes and, and cars and, and even food on the table. I mean, have you, have you considered what he has truly given you? His promise to care for you. His promise to protect you. His promise to save you from your sins. Beloved, the question is, have you developed the right stance as we approach this situation? Are you considering it all joy? Are you considering it all joy that you might be used in this current situation? Beloved, there is nothing, ultimately nothing we can do to avoid trials. Nothing. So we must have the right stance. Look at the next essential when trials come our way. We must you must demonstrate real surrender. Look at your text. Look at verse 3. It says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. See, here James is speaking of a true faith. Beloved, those who have a false faith will do everything they can to preserve their comfort during trial. We'll see them. If we go through great difficulty, we will see those with a false face because they will be the ones who are clamoring to protect themselves. Now, I don't mean practically we need to do what we need to do to protect ourselves, right? But there becomes a point where we have to be willing to go out of our way to help others. During the outbreaks of Various plagues, rich aristocrats would flee the city. See, the cities in, in the 14th century, the cities were festering points for these plagues, right? And so the rich would, when these plagues would begin to pop up, they would flee the city and take up residence in the countryside. They'd leave behind the sick and dying in order to ensure their safety. But you know what Christians did? They did the opposite. They would stay. And they would care for the sick. They would care for those who were in need. You see, Christians do this. Christians are willing to do this because they possess a true faith. A true faith which becomes a tested faith. And that this testing through trial refines and, and purifies your faith. And a tested faith will always produce endurance. That's James's point. 
This endurance is the idea of, of staying power under the difficulty of trials. When you remain under trials, it produces in you an ability, the ability to endure longer and greater trials. God brings trials into our lives to give us more endurance and to fit us for greater service. To be useful for greater service, you must be able to endure great trials. You want to be used by God? You want to, you, you, you know, here, Lord, take me. I want to be used. You know what you're signing up for? You're signing up for great difficulty. You're signing up for great trials in your life. Because God uses great difficulty, He uses great trials in order to give us more endurance and fit us for greater service. It's been said that when God wants to do an impossible task, He takes a impossible man, and he crushes him. Beloved, God crushes us under the weight of a trial to fashion us into the men and women he wants us to become. As we traverse the difficult terrain uh, that we face in the next few months, keep in mind that God is increasing your endurance. I dare say that most of us sitting here today have very little endurance because we lead, lead very comfortable lives. I hope we're ready. We gain endurance as we experience trials. God uses difficulty to shape his people. I hope as you sit here today, I hope as you're listening here today, I hope that you understand that God is using this trial to shape us, to fashion us, to fit us for greater service. This is James' point in the next phrase, verse 4. Let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want you to notice the progression here. God places us into trials and difficulty. We, we bear this difficulty because of our true faith, which then increases our endurance, which fits us for even greater trials. Then God brings even greater trials, which we uh, endure by faith. This entire process sanctifies us, making us more perfect. Beloved, the Lord Jesus is the only complete and perfect man ever lived. Therefore, we become more like Christ as we endure our trials by faith. As we endure this current trial, I'm reminded of the question that went around a few years ago. Do you remember WWJD? What would Jesus do? It's kind of funny because we know what Jesus would do, right? We know because we can study and see in his word what he would do. In Christ, we see perfect faith in action. Do you understand that? That in Christ, we see perfect faith in action. Therefore, we know that, that when he gives us trials, that, that it's our faith that he that is used. To, be, to refine us, to give us endurance, to make us more like Christ, and therefore we know that the trials are for our good and to make us more like Him. And that's Paul's point in, in Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 says that we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Paul, do you mean that even the coronavirus is for our good?
that part of all things? Lord, you mean, or Paul, you mean that when I lose my job? That's for my good? Is that part of all things? Brethren, if you love God, called according to his purpose. Said another way, if you've been saved by grace through faith, then you can trust that he will cause all things to work together for your good. And this includes bringing trials and difficulty into your life. God's not asking you to be a superman or superwoman, right? He's not asking you that. As a matter of fact, as Charles Spurgeon has said, he says this, we are but men. Frail, feeble, and apt to faint. You see, brethren, God fully understands our frailty. I fully understand that many of you will struggle to cope with what's happening. You may be struggling, even now, you may be struggling with fear. But I want to remind you that God uses situations like this to grow us to be more like Christ. And it's a step process. Some of you are farther along in your development, in your maturity. And for those people, be patient and helpful for those who are struggling. Some of you understand that, that no matter what happens, you, whatever, come what may, God is still on his throne. <clears throat> and you're going to live that way. Some of you are going to struggle. Some of you are going to deal with great anxiety. Those of you who are strong, I say come alongside and help those who are weak. Be patient. See, our goal, beloved, is to, is to labor until Christ is formed in all of us. In Colossians 1.28, Paul says we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. As we go through this difficulty, God is growing each and every one of you if you have true faith. If you have a real faith. If you find it, if you find yourself struggling, I beg you then to consider it all joy. Pause what James says. Consider it all joy that God has prepared you for this hour. Consider it all joy that God has a purpose in this trial. He intends to increase our endurance. He plans to sanctify us. He aims to make us more like Christ. And beloved, he never misses his target. Never. You see, the world has, when you, you don't have Christ, you look at this trial and you go, why? Why do we have to endure this? Why do I have to give up my comforts? Why can't I go to Starbucks when I want to go to Starbucks? Why am I having to sit at home? But as Christians, right? As Christians, as those who know Christ, we know that this trial has purpose. Let me exhort you. Your family needs you to trust Christ in this Your your church needs you to consider this all joy. 
your co-workers need you to be a source of hope because most of them will not have hope. Many of them will not have hope. This city needs you to be a source of hope. And God wants you to be more like our Lord Jesus. That's why he sends these things. That's why he puts us through great difficulties. This leads us to the second reminder of why we must trust God in our present circumstances. God's wisdom is paramount. Look at your text. James writes, But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to you. And first here, we must recognize that James does not change subjects. More specifically, James wants his readers to understand that as they face the trials that they face, they will lack the wisdom they need to navigate in those difficult waters. In other words, James assumes that that we will lack the wisdom that we need to successfully face our trials. This word translated wisdom has the idea of knowing how to properly use our knowledge. As such, you can possess tons of knowledge and be an absolutely complete fool. There are many such men in the world. I dare say there are many such men in our world today, men in government, men even in the church who have tons of knowledge, but they don't have any clue how to use it. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. He says this, Wisdom is the right use of knowledge. To know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal, but are all the greater fools for it. There is no fool so great a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to use knowledge is to have wisdom. So James says that we must never be knowledgeable fools. Don't be a knowledgeable fool. There are many people on the internet who are trying to show the world they have great knowledge. And some will have you believe that our current situation is completely made up. You know, much ado about nothing. Others would have you believe that we're witnessing the end of the world and everything's going to end and we're in so much trouble. Wisdom says the answer is somewhere in between, right? We need to take this seriously, but at the same time, it's not the end of the world. That this too shall pass. This too shall end. We don't know what the end's going to look like, but it will pass, and there will be something different. And we can know that because we know God's Word. We know that we live in a fallen world where things are apt to go wrong. We know that viruses exist because of sin. We know that disease spreads because of sin. We know that sicknesses persist because of sin. We know that death comes because of sin. We also know the nature of man. We know that he will take advantage at every turn. We know that he will cause misery. We know that he will wreak havoc. We know that he will deceive. And we also know this, that he will not seek God. So we know, we we know what we face because we read the word of God and we can see it. On his own, beloved, man lacks the wisdom required. But all he has to do is ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach. You see, God is pleased when we seek after his wisdom. He's pleased with us when we seek him for that. Don't forget that Solomon uh, sought the wisdom instead of riches and God gave him both. God is willing to generously give wisdom to those who ask for it. 
and he will do so without reproach. He'll never snap back when we ask. Beloved, we need his wisdom to live in this world. We need his wisdom to navigate our current situation. He gives great wisdom to those who ask for it. We must go to his word. He's given it right here. He's given the wisdom that we need right here. We just need to go and seek it out. Search his word for his wisdom. We must also ask for it in prayer. According to James, we must be persistent in our asking. We must be like the widow who went to the unrighteous judge for legal protection from her opponent. And the text says, the text says, for he was for a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to, them, to himself, even though I don't fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, continually coming, she will wear me out. Here's what, here's what the Lord said about this. The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? Or will he delay long over him then? I tell you, he will bring about justice for them quickly. Guys, we have to be willing to pray persistently. We have to be willing to go to God persistently and knowing that he will answer our prayers and that he will bring justice. God delights in giving us, giving us what we need. But we must work for it. We must be diligent in studying His Word. We must be persistent in prayer. And He expects us to pray in faith. Look at your text. Verse 6. But He must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Beloved, we must pray with the settled expectation that God will answer our prayers. We can't be double-minded in our approach. We can't be like this. One day we're praying to him, asking for wisdom, how to, how to navigate, and the next we're turning and we're listening to worldliness, and we're going after the world. We can't be that way. We have to trust that God alone has the wisdom that we need in our current situation. And as we pray for this, we must be consistent in our approach. We must be confident that God will answer our prayers. And we must, above all, avoid a critical nature when God doesn't seem to immediately answer our prayers. There are going to be times when it doesn't seem He's answering them. Especially when you're going through great trial and difficulty. There's going to be times you're, you're calling out to the Lord and saying, Oh Lord, why are you not answering? We must avoid critical nature. See, our families and our church need stability. Our city needs our church to model stability in our approach to this challenge. We, we must model great stability. an amazing opportunity because we alone as Christians possess and trust in God's wisdom. We know that every trial has a purpose and we recognize that God's wisdom in the midst of those trials is paramount. Therefore we ask for it. We beg for it. 
and we don't stop asking, and we never doubt that God hears us, and we never doubt that He will give us an answer. Lastly, the last reminder that James gives us is that our circumstances are passing. Our circumstances are passing. This goes quickly. At this point, James demonstrates the transitory nature of our lives on earth. It doesn't matter whether you are a poor man or a rich man. Your stay on this earth is passing away. Here in this passage, he addresses two types of people, the rich and the poor. Now, you should recognize in this situation that, that we here in this room are would be considered rich by James. As a matter of fact, we would be considered very rich by James. But whether rich or poor, each has his the, a unique tendency to sin. The poor man tends to look at their situation comparing it to the rich man's situation with envy. He tends to think that riches will improve his standing. He has the attitude, if only I had those riches, then I would have a better life. He tends to say, I'll give to the Lord and to others when I have more. In our world, he's the man who's always looking to win the lottery. He's always looking to come into some real money, right? He's never satisfied with what he's been given. The rich man tends to look at their riches and place their trust fully into the riches, in the riches. He tends to say, I need a little more and then I'll help others, right? He has plenty, but it's never enough. Just like the poor man, he can never be satisfied with what he's been given. Therefore, he refuses to do anything which might jeopardize his fortune. He lives his life thinking about financial security without realizing that true security comes from trusting God alone. In both cases, the poor and the rich, they both are trusting in what they can see, what they can feel, and not trusting in God. They're never satisfied with what they've been given. The poor man trusts in the riches he may gain in the future, while the rich man trusts in the riches that he's gathered for himself, always wanting more. Both tendencies, beloved, are sinful. And sadly, both attitudes are present within God's people, the church. I'm certain that if you would look at yourself, you would ident and identify in yourself one of these tendencies, if you're honest. So with that as a backdrop, let's quick, quickly look at these verses. Look at verse 9. James writes, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. You see, James's antidote for the poor brother is to glory in his high position in Christ. He's been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. He's been given Christ who has, who is, who has unfathomable riches. Look at your text. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like the flowering grass he will pass away. Now I don't have time to give you all the reasons here, but I think he's talking about... Uh, a rich brother or rich so-called brother. And we'll find out in just a few minutes that, that this is the one who claims to have true faith, but he has closed his heart to, we'll find out that he closed his heart to the brother of humble circumstances. He's done this because he doesn't want to lose his life of comfort. He's trusting in his high position here in the world, and, and he's putting all his stock in his world to stand standing. He doesn't realize that he's only a vapor that appears for a little while, and then passes away. He doesn't recognize the transient nature of his riches or even of his life. Look at verse 11. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and the flower falls off, and the beauty of 
its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the pursuit of his or in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. At this point, James gives the answer for both the poor and the rich brother. And this is where we'll end our, our day. We'll end our day here because I think this is the answer to the, our current dilemma. In other words, look at verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Beloved, do you want to have true joy no matter your circumstances? Then you will persevere by faith. You will seek God's word. You will seek God in prayer. You will recognize that our trials have a unique purpose. You will realize that God's wisdom is paramount as we as we traverse this trial. But you'll also recognize that all these circumstances are passing. You see, as Christians, we look forward to the day when we finish this prayer. We look forward to the day when we will receive the crown of life, which I take to be eternal life with God. You see, as Christians, we don't live for the riches that we might have. We don't live for the riches that we do have. We live for the crown of life, which is promised to those who persevere. We live for the fact that we will be with Christ forever. Christians, this is the promise we live for. Beloved, we may face some incredibly difficult circumstances in the coming weeks and months. I don't know what we face. You don't know, I don't know. It could be very difficult. I hope that it's not. My hope is that it's much better than we think. But we have to be prepared. We have to understand that this could be very bad and very difficult. But if you are in Christ, if Christ is your hope, I want to remind you all that you have in Him. I want to remind you of the unfathomable riches of Christ. He alone is our hope. He alone has redeemed us. If you're not a believer here today, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I call on you to believe in the gospel. Christ, God, sent his very own son. He promised. He promised that he would send this redeemer. Well, this redeemer is the son of God, very God, who came and lived on this earth, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did what you and I never could have done. 
And in doing so, he took upon the wrath of the Father, took upon himself the wrath of the Father for our sin. So that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. Beloved, Christ, Jesus Christ, He was victorious over viruses. He was victorious over disease. He was victorious and ultimately over sin and even death. We can have true hope because of him. We can have true, as James says, true joy because we look forward to a world Holy redeemed. We look forward to living with Him in a perfect existence. What a wonderful hope as we consider the world we live in today. I hope that you leave here today breathing a little bit more joy in Christ and that you'll grow in that way as we traverse the next few weeks. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We pray that you would comfort and that you, you are the God of all comfort. Father, I pray and I hope that my feeble words are of some use. That you would use them. more than that, I pray that you would be glorified as we go through the next few weeks and months, that you be glorified in our actions and in whatever quiet time we spend with you, that we would have true joy as we face potentially very difficult circumstances. Father, I pray that the world would look to us and they would see Christ. They would look to us and they would see a true hope.